Well, this morning's scripture reading before we dive into the message is from Isaiah 12. Actually, it is Isaiah 12, the whole thing, so buckle up. This is a song of praise. On that day, you will say, I will give thanks to the Lord. Although you were angry with me, your anger has turned away. And you have comforted me. Indeed, God is my salvation. I will trust in him and not be afraid. For the Lord, the Lord himself, is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. You will joyfully draw water from the springs of salvation, and on that day you will say, Give thanks to the Lord, proclaim his name. Make his works known among the peoples. Declare that his name is exalted. Sing to the Lord, for he has done glorious things. Let this be known throughout the earth. Cry out and sing, City of Zion, for the Holy One of Israel is among you in his greatness. Thanks, BJ. Good morning again. Good to see you guys. Going to talk about confusion this morning, if that's okay with you. <laughs> Trouble with that. I'm confused. Um, it's interesting. Uh, sometimes I wrestle with text more than others. When I'm preparing to, to teach on a Sunday, when I'm preparing a message, I'll wrestle with certain things more than I anticipated. Um, and and it's, it's actually been really helpful and humbling for me to realize that whenever I feel like I have something down or I feel like I understand something, the Lord likes to flip that upside down on me and make it seem like I, not make it seem, make it apparent that I really don't know what I'm doing, that I'm really completely dependent and totally confused at different times. And I know this isn't what you want to hear when I get up to teach you on a Sunday morning. But I think that a lot of times we are confused to think that we actually have to have life all figured out, that we have to have all the answers. Like we live in a day and age that somehow we've come to this, this place as human beings where we can know everything that there is to be known. But the truth of the matter is, is that no one knows everything. There's only one who knows everything, and that is God. That is God himself that we are forever going to be created beings and he will forever be the creator. And in that statement, with that idea, the Lord's just been kind of stirring this up in me freshly this morning. This wasn't even something that I was thinking much about throughout this week, but it just became apparent as I was looking at this text that a lot of times I expect my confusion to disappear before I obey. I expect that I will understand fully before I take steps of obedience or before I begin walking down the path that I know God wants me to go down. And the truth of the matter is, is lots of times we're going to have a lot of questions, but God still expects us to walk in obedience. Francis Chan said this, the prophets didn't have lofty goals like I'm going to lead the masses, but strove only to be faithful to whatever God called them to. Think of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the others. The others would be Habakkuk. Their ambition was to follow directions. I'm going to repeat that. Their ambition was to follow directions. That was the ambition of their life, was to follow the directions of the Lord. And we've seen this throughout our study in Habakkuk, that he couldn't really figure out 
why God was doing things the way he was doing them. He understood the reasoning, but he couldn't understand the, how it was going to play out. And he asked God a number of questions, and God explained some things, but he didn't explain others. And what we come to in chapter 3, as we begin Habakkuk 3 this morning, is that Habakkuk comes to this realization about all that God has done in history, about who God is and how he doesn't need all the answers to trust in him. You see, because Habakkuk's ambition was to follow God's directions. We've journeyed with him through the valley of despair, through the confusion, up to the watchtower, waiting for God's response. As he even said there, I'm going to wait and see how God responds to me rebuking him, which is a scary thing to do. And now we'll ascend with him in song, which draws from rich biblical history. And it's going to conclude with the prophet rejoicing in the strength of the Lord, no matter what the circumstances. We won't get to that part today. Sorry, teaser for next time. That's to get you guys to come rake leaves with me and then come back for the next study on the 20th. And we got you hooked. Then you're in because it's Advent. You can't leave during Christmas. That's just mean. You guys, we were never promised to be confusion free. We were never promised to have all the answers. We're often a people in search of direction and it takes effort on our part to seek out the Lord's direction for our individual lives day by day. But just because we put the effort in doesn't mean we're going to have him figured out or what he's doing. It takes reliance on the Lord's strength once we know the direction to make progress down that path. Notice that. Once God shows us the path, if you're like, I feel like I have an idea of where God's taking me next, you're going to have to rely on his strength to get you there. He's not going to leave you on that path and go, all right, there it is. Should be good. We'll see you later and leave you. We know that God's going to make it so that, and, and we know like, oh, the Lord is always with me. Yes, that's a great thought, and it sounds all fluffy and nice, right? The Lord's always with me. I'm never going to be in need. Mm-hmm. Until you're in need and you cry out to him. That's the point. God is going to show you on that path again and again and again that you must rely on him for every step that you take on that path. It's not just getting on the path. The walking of the path that God has called you to will be reliant on his power. That's by design. When we truly know God, we obey him. We spent weeks and weeks in the letter of 1 John. And over and again, the apostle reminds the church and he says, if you love the Lord, you keep his commandments. If we know God, we walk in obedience if we truly know him, sometimes I feel like I make that journey a lot harder than I have to, a lot harder than it has to be, because I try to do things my way, and I try to do things the way that makes sense to me. Why is it so hard to obey the one who died for me? Why is it so difficult for us to walk in obedience to the one who laid his life down so that I could have eternal life? so that you could have eternal life. Why is that difficult? Do you ever feel like we make it harder than we have to? It encourages me to read the work of the saints that have passed away long before my time because they echoed these same questions. They asked the same kind of questions. One of my favorites, A.W. Tozer, said this, to know God is at once the easiest and the most difficult thing in the world. Don't we get that? 
Because people will ask you, like, you know, is it easy to walk with the Lord? And you'll be like, well, kind of. What do you mean by kind of? Well, I, I mean, it's natural to love him because he loves me so much. And when I recognize that he loves me so much, I love him and I want to do things his way. But it's also the hardest thing you'll ever do. In the same breath, it's the most difficult challenge you'll ever take on to walk in God's ways, to walk in obedience to what his word has called us to do. In fact, you could say that it's impossible without his help. It's impossible without the filling of the Holy Spirit. Hence the reason we struggle so much. I think Habakkuk would agree, and in the midst of coming judgment on his people, the prophet concludes his writing here in this prophecy with a song or a psalm. And your Bible might say it's a prayer, but you'll notice at the very beginning of this chapter that this is a prayer according to the Shigionoth, which is a song arrangement. And at the very end of this chapter, it says to be given to the choir director or the music director to be played with stringed instruments. How'd you like a prayer of yours to be sung in front of bodies of people? <laughs> you might think a little bit more carefully about your prayer. <laughs> I think I would. Oh, Lord, bless this meatloaf that I'm about to eat. I don't want that being sung over anybody. Right? So we might think a little bit more carefully if we realize that God was like, yeah, so this little prayer you're about to pray, it's going to be sung in the church, so pray carefully. Right? You guys, what Habakkuk is going to do is he's going to intercede for the people. He's going to recall the powerful work of God in their history, and he's going to proclaim a future exodus and then praise God for being the source of his strength and the one who saves. We're going to get through three of those four things this morning. We're going to cover the first three sections of this psalm, which is his intercession, his declaration of God's powerful ways, and then he's going to point towards a future exodus. Let's dig in, and what we'll do is we'll take this in little sections. So we're going to begin in chapter 3. We're going to read the first two verses together. I invite you to follow along with me. It's on the screen. If you have your Bible, use your Bible too. Reads this way. Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 1 and 2 says, A prayer of the prophet Habakkuk according to the Shigunoth. Lord, I have heard the report about you. Lord, I stand in awe of your deeds. Revive your work in these years. Make it known in these years. In your wrath, remember mercy. Shigunoth, if you're unfamiliar, refers to a type of song. Its precise meaning is unknown, but some really well-educated and smarter than me guys have suggested that the term refers to a song that's like a dirge. We might call it a lament. Um, or it's a song that possibly had an irregular beat. All you drummers would love it. I love that Habakkuk's prayer was given to the music director and that it was intended to be sung. And it says this as he prays and as he writes this psalm, he says, Lord, I've heard the report about you. I've heard the report about you. I stand in awe of your deeds. Revive your work in these years. Make it known in these years. In your wrath, remember mercy. The first thing we should notice immediately is that this prayer this song is God-centric. It's about what he is doing, what he has done, and what the prophet longs for him to do. It is focused on the work of God. Habakkuk is no longer arguing with the Lord as he did initially. 
When God said, I'm going to do this, Habakkuk argued, and then God gave him the five woes you remember from last week, and now Habakkuk's just responding. He's just responding what the Lord says. He's not arguing anymore. And the report there in that verse, in verse 2, it could include both what the Lord has done through Israel's history and or what he's about to do. I've heard the report about you. In other words, he could be referring to what you have just said and what we can expect you to do. And he's going to build off that idea as we continue in this chapter. Regardless of which one he's identifying, Habakkuk's posture is the same. Whether he is referring to what God has done, what he's currently doing, or what he will do, his posture remains the same. And we can learn from this. I stand in awe of your deeds. When was the last time you took significant time and stood in awe of what God has done? His world, his creation, your life, your family, all of the things that he has done. Even thought through just the last year. A friend of mine, who's also a pastor, encouraged me when I turned 40. Yes, I'm over 40. When I turned 40, he said, you should go up to a remote place I don't know if he's ever done this. He just wanted to trip me out. But he goes, go up to a remote place and think through your last decade. Think through your 30s. Like intentionally get alone with the Lord and kind of pray through the years and what the Lord has done. Now, I had a really spooky experience. And it wasn't because of the Lord. It's because of where I went. And uh, I got scared silly on this trip. But it was really eye-opening for me. It was really encouraging for me because as I thought through my 30s, I wasn't thinking about all the things that I wish God hadn't done. I was thinking about all the ways that he was faithful and how I wasn't, and yet I still am his son. I thought about all of the things that I did wrong and how he hadn't struck me from the earth, but has continued to bless me and continued to be patient with me. And boy, that's a humbling thing. When you stop and think about what the Lord has done in your life and that he continues to love you and show you grace and mercy, boy, that really changes your heart. I think we need to take time often to stand in awe of the Lord's deeds. After all, as we read through the scriptures, is it not full of all the things that God has done? How faithful he was to his people, as we'll read about in a moment. How Jesus came and died on the cross to save us from our wretchedness and our sin. This is the effect the word of God ought to have on us, church, every time we open it. Lord, we stand in awe of what you have done and what you will do. We stand in awe of who you are. I see both an acceptance in the latter part of verse 2 and a plea, a longing for God to revive the powerful deliverance that he had accomplished amongst his people in the past, And even in the midst of wrath or judgment, he cries out to God to be merciful. This is a mark of a person who knows and loves God. David wrote in Psalm 103, I'm going to read a longer section of this. Psalm 103, verses 6 through 12, almost as if he was writing a psalm in response to what the Lord says about himself in Exodus 34. When God declares who he is to Moses, the psalmist writes Psalm 103 in response, and it definitely pertains to what Habakkuk is saying here in chapter 3. Psalm 103, beginning in verse 6, says, The Lord executes acts of righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. He revealed his ways to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love. 
He will not always accuse us or be angry forever. He has not dealt with us as our sins deserve or repaid us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his faithful love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Even in the midst of impending judgment for their sin, Habakkuk says, oh God, remember mercy. In your wrath, remember mercy. We ought to intercede just like this. The heart of Habakkuk is what we're supposed to be noticing here. That even when God has said, I'm going to bring judgment, we have a heart that has been changed by the Lord to cry out on behalf of the lost, on behalf of those who, have, who are broken and fallen. And it's the heart that Moses had when God said, step aside, Mo. I'm paraphrasing. Step aside. I'm going to waste these guys. And Moses is like, wait. And he steps in between the almighty God and the people. This is the same Moses who when God said, would you go with me? I'll go with you, but go and, and, and you know, bring your people out of Egypt. I want you to bring my people out of Egypt and I'm going to use you. And Moses says, please send someone else. Same guy. This is the heart that God gave Moses. He said, don't destroy your people for your namesake, for your glory. Don't do this. That's the heart that God wanted to see in Moses. Here's the heart that he aimed to see in Habakkuk. Remember mercy. Lord, in your wrath, remember mercy. Is that our heart for our generation? Do we stand in between and go, Lord, give them, a, give them time? Or are we like, whack them, Lord? Man, they deserve it. Not like me. They do. I'm perfect. I've been great. You're so lucky to have me. I don't know where you would be without me. We think like that, don't we? We ask God to bring down his wrath on people who wrong us. But we expect and we desire his mercy in our lives. Do we desire it for the lost? Do we desire it for the broken? Do we want to see the Lord give us time that his hand would stay? Instead of strike, we ought to intercede like the prophet does here. A heart that loves Jesus cries out for the lost. Oh God, remember mercy. That's the heart of his church for the lost right here in our communities and in our neighborhoods. We ought to pray that the Lord would give us that heart and we see it in Paul. In Romans chapter nine, it's one of my favorite passages and it's one of those passages I really, really wrestle with because do you ever like read the letters of Paul and be like, for real, bro? Maybe you don't say bro, but like, for real? Are you legit? Because he says stuff like this. I speak the truth in Christ. And he says, I'm not lying. Because immediately what he's about to say is going to make you think he's a liar. I love that. Whenever, whenever someone's writing, they're like, listen, totally telling the truth. It's like, okay, what you're about to say, I would suspect you of being a liar, right? I speak the truth in Christ, Paul says. I'm not lying. My conscience testifies to me through the Holy Spirit. That's weighty. That I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the benefit of my brothers and sisters, my own flesh and blood. Who do we love so much that we would give our salvation for them? That's what Paul's talking about here. I love these people so much, I would give my own salvation for them. 
Do we love like that? By the way, Paul was a man. Paul was a man who was filled with the Spirit. That's what God wants to do in us as well. You guys, I have been so judgmental. I've been so harsh. I've been so heavy-handed. And God has convicted me with this over and over again. Am I like the prophet that says, Oh Lord, would you remember mercy for your people? Am I like Paul? I would give my own salvation for these who are lost. Do I love like that? It's the heart of someone who makes intercession. Jesus said this himself in John 15, verse 13. No one has greater love than this to lay down his life for his friends. That's love. Lay your life down. Don't you love looking at Jesus? Don't you just take him in when you read the scriptures in awe? Do we not stand in awe because Jesus was not a man who said love like that. He said love like this. Jesus didn't say you should go lay your life down for your friends. He literally went to the cross and did it to show us what it looked like. He was not just words. Jesus was words and actions. Jesus backed up what he said. Are we the same? When we say that we love each other, when we say that we care about one another, do we love like Jesus loves? If we want to see the work of God revive in our years, if that is our true plea, as Habakkuk prayed, we have to begin with our love for one another. Because he cried out to God and said, revive your work in these years. Church, I don't know how many times you've heard it. I've heard it a lot, especially from this position that we are longing for another revival. Revivals begin with brokenness, confession, repentance, and restoration of the church. It starts with us. Do you want to know what it's going to look like? Us loving each other to death. Not, man, I love you, but like loving each other to death, right? Do we, do we understand that? actually laying our lives down for one another. We don't care what it takes. I'm going to show you the love of Christ. That's where revival will happen. When Habakkuk says, revive your work in these days, he says, remember your mercy. Oh God, remember your mercy. Seeking mercy for the lost and loving others to the point of self-sacrifice. So Habakkuk begins with that intercession and then he shifts his focus to the power of God. And these passages are powerful. Beginning in verse 3, he continues in his psalm. He said, God comes from Taman, the Holy One from Mount Paran. And then there is a Selah there. His splendor covers the heavens and the earth is full of his praise. His brilliance is like light. Rays are flashing from his hand. This is where his power is hidden. Plagues and plague goes before him. And pestilence follows in his steps. He stands and shakes the earth. He looks and startles the nations. The age-old mountains break apart. The ancient hills sink down. His pathways are ancient. I see the tents of Kushan in distress. The tent curtains of the land of Midian tremble. That imagery of these people literally quaking in their homes. These Bedouin tribes quaking as the Lord comes. 
This appearance of God in power resonates with Nahum chapter 1 and Micah chapter 1. If you read those accounts as well, very similar descriptions of God coming in power. If we take note of the two locations mentioned in verse 3, if you look at Taman and you look at um, Mount Paran, some scholars have suggested that Mount Paran's another name for the entire Sinai Peninsula and even for Mount Sinai itself. Then if you look at, um, excuse me, I lost my place, Taman, <laughs> there's too many Paran, Taman, I'm going to get confused no matter what. Taman is usually identified with Edom. And so these regions that you're looking at, this is the pathway of the Exodus. He's talking about these locations, and he's saying this is the march of God, if you will, out of Egypt, through the Sinai Peninsula, into the land of Edom. This is the march of God's people from slavery in Egypt to the freedom of the promised land. The imagery is meant to give us this understanding of not only drawing from the Exodus account, and we'll look at that in a little more detail in just a second, but also to be thinking about how God works, how God saves people. Before he begins describing the attributes of God in greater detail, we have a selah here. It's an interesting term when you see it used in Scripture. Habakkuk's the only other Old Testament location besides the Psalms that has the word selah in it. It's one of the main reasons why we would say this is a psalm we know it's a song but we would say it's a psalm because it's using a lot of the same flow and feel most commonly selah is interpreted as a signal for a break in singing and possibly for an instrumental interlude Uh, i've heard guys teach it in the past that they would suggest that that gives you time to pause and reflect on what's being said to think about what's being said it's it's definitely a musical cue and so of course i think this is where the big guitar solo would happen uh, it never appears uh, as at the beginning of a psalm. You always see it in the middle or at the end. This word Selah. Now I was joking about the guitar solo, mostly. But this is time that's being given in a text for us to stop for a minute. And if it was being played to music, to listen to the music and consider what had been said thus far. God comes from Taman, the Holy One, from Mount Paran. So after saying God coming from the Sinai region to the region of Edom, across the wilderness, en route to the promised land, let's just think about that for a minute. And it makes you wonder if people of this time would actually stop and think about their ancestors being freed from slavery, heading into the promised land by God's power. He's going to talk about that in a minute, but let's just let that backdrop sink to the floor. And let it set the stage for what's going to be said next. As we think about the journey of the nation of Israel into the promised land, the song continues. His splendor covers the heavens and the earth is full of his praise. His brilliance is like light. Rays are flashing from his hand. This is where his power is hidden. Plague goes before him and pestilence follows in his steps. He stands and shakes the earth. He looks and startles the nations. The old age-old mountains break apart. The ancient hills sink down. His pathways are ancient. I see the tents of Kushan in distress. The tent curtains of the land of Midian tremble. The end of verse 3, agreeing with the words of David in Psalm 19. Verse 1 where he says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the expanse proclaims the work of his hands. He says, Everything that you see is crying out about the existence and the glory of God. Paul would agree in Romans chapter 1. When he says that even those who don't believe 
are without excuse because all of creation is declaring who God is and what he is able to do. Everything about the section of this song is designed to set our eyes on the glory of God. Do we read the scriptures in such a way that even in a passage you're like, okay, I kind of see some of the symbolic stuff that's happening here, but it's not really like, you know, it's not like reading a letter to the church. Are you seeing the glory of God? Are you grasping or taking time to see how powerful and almighty God is? With the description of God's power in the Exodus, brilliance like light, plagues and pestilence, the fear of the Bedouin nations as the God of Israel marches his people out of Egypt, having wrecked the power of Pharaoh, absolutely pulverized the Egyptian army. The language of verse 6 draws us into this deeper understanding. It says, he stands and shakes the earth. Did you ever think about that statement? Think about what a general does. Invading generals either push forward to gain ground or they fall back to retreat. What does God do? He stands. Why? Because nothing scares him. He's not afraid of anything. God stands and declares who he is. He is afraid of nothing. And how often are we afraid of everything? Every little thing that could happen. Every little thing that pops up in our life. Every little situation. And we're reminded here, the prophet says, don't forget, our God stands. He doesn't have to wait to see how the battle's going to go. God's going to win the battle if he wants to win the battle. It's over. Our God is fearless. He stands to face the enemy unafraid, completely in control of his creation. Church, God is completely in control. Important words for us to hear when we recognize that we're coming up to election time in a couple days. And every time election time rolls around, the doomsdayers emerge. I want to encourage those of you who feel like things look pretty bleak. Our God stands. Jesus is still victorious. Nothing stops that. What, what could happen in our country should never cause us to waver in who we know our God is. And what he can and will do. I encourage you guys, vote Tuesday, but don't, don't put all your hope in it. Don't put all your hope in it. Vote because it's your freedom and your right in this country, and that's a blessed thing. That's an awesome thing. But my hope is not in the U.S. of A. My hope is in the unperishable, untouchable kingdom of Jesus Christ. Amen? To him be the power and the glory forevermore. And when he returns... He'll set it straight. He's going to set all this straight. Whew. Mike got political. Okay, I'm back. Just as God delivered his people from Egypt through the waters of the Red Sea, across the wilderness and through the waters of the Jordan, he's going to deliver all those who trust in him from the evil of this world into his eternal rest through Jesus. I'm going to say that again because I just blasted through that. Just as God delivered his people from Egypt through the waters of the Red Sea, an improbable escape across the wilderness, through the waters of the Jordan, into the promised land, 
sustained them for 40 years because of their rebellion against him. He will deliver all those who trust in him from the evil of this world to be delivered from their sin for those who put their trust in Christ, to walk them through the wilderness of this life and to cross us over that Jordan into all eternity with Jesus. Amen? He's going to take us that same path. When we look at the Exodus account, he's reminding us of our own journey. He's saying, you were delivered out of slavery to sin from Egypt. Don't go back there. And isn't it amazing when we look at the nation of Israel, like, why did they want to go back to Egypt? I don't know. Why do you want to go back to your sin? When God has delivered us from sin, when he's delivered us from slavery, we are so lame. We're like those sheep that are like, let's go back. We just want to go right back to it again. It's true, though. Like, and why do we do that? You could just say, because we're dumb sheep. But you guys, we need to follow the shepherd. He led them through the wilderness. This life is wilderness. It's difficult. We don't know where we're going. We're wandering in it. And where is he taking us? He's going to cross the waters of the Jordan with his righteousness and his holiness as the ark crossed over. The water cleared for them step by step. And they entered into that promised land, that rest that God had prepared for them. It's a picture. It's a reminder of what God can do if his people trust him. If they trust in his process and what he can do. He will deliver all those who trust in him from the evils of this world into his eternal rest. And check out this last section because we've looked at Habakkuk's intercession We've looked at the power of God as he talks about all that God did, just bringing those pictures out of plagues and pestilence and the nations who were trembling as God marched his people into glory. And I believe he speaks of this future exodus that's coming. Are you angry at the rivers, Lord? Is your wrath against the rivers? I'm reading from verse 8. Or is your fury against the sea when you ride on your horses, your victorious chariot? You took the sheath from your bow. The arrows are ready to be used with an oath. There's another Selah there. That's a powerful statement to think about for a second. God unsheaths his bow. Who's doing the fighting? He's doing it himself, right? You split the earth with rivers. The mountains see you and shudder. A downpour of water sweeps by. The deep roars with its voice and lifts its waves high. Sun and moon stand still in their lofty residence at the flash of your flying arrows, at the brightness of your shining spear. You march across the earth with indignation. You trample down the nations in wrath. You come out to save your people, to save your anointed You crush the leader of the house of the wicked and strip him from foot to neck. And he says, Selah, have another interlude there. Stop. As the music plays, you pierce his head with his own spears. His warriors storm out to scatter us, gloating as if ready to secretly devour the weak. You tread the sea with your horses, stirring up the vast water. This whole passage is filled with reminders of Old Testament victories that God gave to his people. It's like a collage of snapshots from victories that God gave to his people, and the prophet is declaring them as not only what God has done, but what God will do. Because there's always promise in the Old Testament of not only God's faithfulness in the past, but what he will do through his anointed one what he will do through 
the line of David, as the reader in this time period would see that, but we'll take that a little bit deeper. If you look at verse 8, chariots and horses, rivers and sea, images of God's victory over Pharaoh in Egypt. You look at verse 9, battles fought en route to Canaan, all won by God when his people walked in obedience to him as he took out the bow and he made ready his arrows and he led his people through all these conquests. Remember, they were not a people that was known for their ability to fight in battles. They had been suppressed in slavery by the Egyptians. Now, if this was the Egyptians marching, you'd be like, oh yeah, they were fearsome. But the Israelites, the Hebrews, they were feared because of their God, not because of what they could do themselves. Their God had demonstrated his power. Verse 10 talks about, I believe, situations similar to what we see in Judges chapters 4 and 5, which tells the story of Barak and Deborah over Sisera as they fought with this commander when a sudden rainstorm turned their battlefield into this swamp, basically. This massive downpour came, and Sisera and his army was known for their fierce chariots, and chariots are no good in mud. God flooded the whole valley. And his people won this massive victory in Judges 4 and 5. We see it referenced, I believe, here as the mountains see you and shudder. A downpour of water sweeps by the deep roars with its voice and lifts its waves high. God summons his own creation to fight on behalf of his people. Verse 11 reminds us of Joshua chapter 10. He says, sun and moon stand still in their lofty residence. At the flash of your flying arrows, at the brightness of your shining spear. Remember that story from Joshua chapter 10 where they're fighting this battle and they need more time to win this victory for the Lord. And Joshua looks up at the sun and he says, stand still. It's a pretty powerful situation. You don't really see another situation like that one in the Old Testament. Where a man commands the sun to hold still so that God's victory can be won. Verse 12, God marches his people through Canaan like a farmer threshing grain. Nothing stands against them. All of these pictures, these reminders for God's people, don't forget what our God can do. Church, do not forget what our God can do. Here's the lesson that Habakkuk already learned. God can do it this way, or God can do it this way, or God can do it this way but the righteous will live by his faith. Faith in what? Faith in God and his process and whatever he chooses to do. Do not forget that his hand has not weakened one bit since he created this world. And remember, he's going to do what's best for us if we stay close to him and walk in obedience. If we follow his commands. The righteous one from Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4, will live by his faith. Did you catch the tone shift in verse 13? He highlights these battles to the Old Testament. He's talking about these situations that hit the people would remember God has done this. And then the tone shifts in verse 13. I love it. You come out to save your people, to save your anointed. Now he's referencing to the, the line of David. Right? You crush the leader of the house of the wicked and strip him, 
foot to neck. Egypt, Babylon, Rome, just a few of the great nations of history. And I mentioned this last week because I thought Wearsby said it really well. He said, if you want to see what Babylon, Babylon looked like, go to a museum. Because they're gone. They're gone. They were all brought to ruin. God brings justice on the leader of the house of the wicked. But who is the ultimate leader of wickedness in this world? Who is the ultimate Lord of darkness? You can say it in a church. Satan is. He is the leader of the wicked. He is the one who is at the head of this. Scripture is clear that Satan is, and no plan or scheme of Satan has been able or will be able to stop the will of God from being lived out and victorious through his anointed one. No plan of the enemy is going to prosper against the anointed one of David. By the way, if you're curious, that word for anointed one in Hebrew is Mashiach. We would say Messiah. It's the promise that the king will come from the line of David. And read verse 13 again. You come out to save your people, to save your anointed. God is going to accomplish what he promised to accomplish. This is pointing to the Messiah. This is pointing to the hope that would come through the line of David, which we know to be Jesus. The wicked won't prosper. Habakkuk's prayer, his intercession, his history lesson about the power of God, both point to God's faithfulness in the past and forward to his enduring faithfulness for all eternity as Egypt and Babylon here serve as archetypes of the wickedness of the world and God's victory over them. We aren't just meant to see all the victories that the nation of Israel had. We're meant to expect future victories in Christ Jesus, church. That God will win this battle and that we fight from victory and not for victory. That is the biblical truth. Even as bleak as things looked for Habakkuk and as bleak as we can feel like they look at times in our lives, gazing at our almighty God, remembering all that he has done and has promised to do, no wonder he told Habakkuk the righteous one will live by his faith because the righteous one will look at who God is and what he can do and place his whole hope in him and not in any of the contrivances of men, and not in any of the things that are possessions or stuff of this world. Because none of it will save. Jesus is the only one. And our king is coming. Habakkuk will become a shining example of having this heart as we close out Habakkuk in the last few verses in a couple weeks. After we get back from raking leaves, Next week and the following week, on the 20th, we'll close out this section. And we're going to see Habakkuk at this point. I'm just going to give you a teaser because it's necessary for this chapter. He's going to look and say, all right, no matter what's coming, no matter what's happening, the Lord is my strength. This theme of the righteous will live by his faith pervades this entire book. For us to remember that we walk by faith and not by sight. We cannot get discouraged of what we're seeing in the world around us because we see the eternal picture. Church, maybe we've been looking at the micro too much. We've missed out on the macro.
we've missed out on perspective. And I want to encourage and challenge you guys. Let's take a step back and look at the big picture again. Let's remember all God has done. Let's see what he's doing right now. And let's get excited about what he's doing in the future. The church should not be depressed. The church should not be sad. The church should not be crawling around whining about how hard our lives are. We should be thrilled and excited because Jesus is going to finish the work that he started. That the lamb, as we see in Revelation, is worthy to open the scroll. That is one of the most powerful verses in scripture for me. I, get, I have goosebumps right now. I get goosebumps all the time. Sorry, I just, I'm a thrill guy. But like, when I read that passage and, like there, and, and John's weeping and he's like, no one can open this. And the angel's like, chill, homie. Once again, paraphrasing. He says, look at the lamb. Sorry. <laughs> That's all you're going to think now. You're going to be reading Revelation and be like, chill, homie. Hey, it got in my Bible too. No, no, no. He says this. The lamb is worthy to open the scroll. Jesus is worthy. Church, we should never be despondent. Jesus is worthy. And he will bring everything to an end. Worship team, would you guys come on up? We're going to share in communion this morning, but before we do that, I want to read 1 Corinthians chapter 10. It's not in the slides, guys. I apologize. This is a late edition. And I felt like the Lord just put this on my heart this morning to share with you guys in conclusion. As we think about Habakkuk being this shining example of having this heart that's for people, that loves people, that's crying out for the mercy of God, but is also remembering the power of God and just he has great perspective in this song. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul's talking about warnings from Israel's past. He's talking about how the church needs to remember what they went through, what God's people went through, and what their rebellion led to. And he says this in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 9, Let us not test Christ as some of them did, and were destroyed by snakes. By the way, if you know me, I'm Indiana Jones. I hate snakes. Can't do it. So destroyed by snakes sounds really horrible to me. He says this, 1 Corinthians 10.10, don't complain if some of them did and were killed by the destroyer. These things happened to them as examples. They were written for our instruction on whom the ends of the ages have come. He says, church, these Old Testament writings were written for your instruction. They were written to set an example of what kind of people we ought to be. And in following that, Paul says this, Whoever thinks he stands must be careful not to fall. Let there be no pride, no arrogance, no delusion of self in this room that none of us would think that we are above failing, that we're above getting off track. Let us come humbly in this time, and especially as we come to the table, as we come to communion, longing, for the Lord to refresh us with this family meal, with the body and with the blood. We take communion. This is a family thing. Now, this is not something that's for non-believers. This is for believers. This is for the household of faith. Because Jesus 
said himself, This is my body which is for you. And when you take this, do it in remembrance of me. Paul explains in 1 Corinthians 11 after chapter 10 that we should examine ourselves and then take of the bread and drink of the cup. It's why as communion is going to be distributed to you now. As we sing this song, you're going to be given an opportunity to examine yourself. To pray for yourselves individually, Psalm 139, 23 and 24, where the psalmist writes, Search me, God, and know me. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there's any wicked way in me and lead me in your everlasting way. That's what this moment is for. So as the crew comes forward to distribute communion, as we sing this song, I want to encourage you guys, worship, examine your hearts, hold on to the elements, and we'll take those together. But let's distribute communion for the body and sing a song of praise.